0: our worship of our glorious Christ by turning in our Bibles to John chapter 12 John chapter 12 beloved what a thought Christ became sin for us rolls off the tongue so easily because you know that truth so well but your eternal destiny depends on that reality that Christ became sin for you. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him the righteousness of God might be placed upon you. Praise be to our glorious Christ. In any religious system, there are a few things that if you take them away, you lose the whole thing. I was reminded of that this last week as we were in Utah seeing the culture of the Mormon religion, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they call themselves was confronted with the reality that if you remove one key element, the whole thing comes crashing down. And that key element is Joseph Smith and his writings in which he claims to have reclaimed revelation from God. You remove him and his writings, it all crashes down. If you remove the Pope and the priestly hierarchy out of the Roman Catholic system, you lose the religion of the Roman religion. If you take away the teachings of nirvana and reincarnation from Hinduism or Buddhism, you lose the core of their system. The package itself becomes meaningless without those core elements. When you come to biblical Christianity, there are several key doctrines which sit at the center of biblical faith. You must know and believe and hold to be true to have a right and true faith. Things like the doctrine of Scripture being the clear, sufficient revelation of God, the the triunity of God, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The virgin birth of our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, the deity and the humanity of Jesus, two natures in one man, the Savior of the world. But all of these necessary and true doctrines of the Christian faith come together in one event, which if you removed it, you would cease to have the Christian faith. It's the chief work of the chief cornerstone himself. It's the work upon which the church is built. It's the core and central message the church proclaims. It's the event most pictured in Old Testament narratives as they foreshadow this reality. It's the event most often predicted by Old Testament prophets as they spoke of things to come. It's the event which occupies the most real estate in the New Testament Gospels, telling of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's this event that dominates the end of their book. The last quarter to fifth of their book is dominated by this event. It's the climactic work of the Word of God of God who has taken upon himself flesh and come into our world. It's the event which compels the bold and courageous witness of the apostles in the book of Acts, willing to be bludgeoned and beaten and thrown into prison and eventually martyred because this event happened. It's the core of their message. It is their one note they continually play. It's the event which is explained in depth of doctrine in the New Testament letters from Romans through Revelation. It's the event that not only is it explained in its theological significance, but also in its application to the life of believers. So because you believe this is how your life should look in light of this event, this event should shape you in this way. It's the event which occupies the worship songs of heaven as described by the Apostle John in his Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. It is this person who has accomplished this event who is at the center of heaven's worship. It is the accomplishments of this event which guarantee the final victory of Jesus over sin and Satan and death, all prophesied by John's revelation. It's the event which Jesus himself has been telling his inner core of disciples is coming. No less than three times on his way to Jerusalem, he has said, this event is going to happen. He's repeatedly made known to them that there is an hour approaching, and I am heading to Jerusalem for that hour. And now John has told us, Jesus in his own words, has told us in John's gospel, the hour is here. The event of which I speak, you obviously know, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And by his cross, I mean to speak explicitly of his substitutionary work. That he became sin for us on the cross of of his death. And that in his death, he truly, really died, was buried in a borrowed tomb and rose from the grave three days later. It's at the cross that we have the center of biblical Christianity. The cross is the hinge upon which of all of human history turns. The church is not built upon authority structures of, of human making or understanding. You can remove pastors and elders. You can put them in jail or burn them at the stake and the church marches on. You can take away the church's ability to meet openly and the church Marches on. You can come after her with every onslaught of evil imaginable, but she moves forward. You can oppress her, oppose her, and seek to destroy her, but the church marches on. You can try to get rid of her scriptures, but you will not prevail. The truth and the church will march on. You can take away her buildings. You can seek to thwart her ministries in the community, but the church will march on. Why? Because what stands at the core of biblical Christianity is not who she is or what she does as the church. It is what Christ has done upon the cross. And this you can never remove. This you can never take away. You can deny it and not believe it and go your own way. But this undeniable reality, this work of Christ moves ever forward in humanity. The core of our faith is something which can never be diminished or taken away. Preachers come and go. Church buildings and projects come and go. Opposition will come and go, but the cross of Christ remains. In John 12, we round the bend of the home stretch of Jesus' life and ministry. He's in the final days, nay, I should say the final hours of his life. I think in this text, he's somewhere on Tuesday night, He's approaching the cross, which will begin, his trials will begin early Friday morning. He will be nailed to a cross in the early hours of Friday morning. He is literally hours away from his coming death. In John 12, we have his final interactions with the crowd before he goes to give himself on the cross. We'll not read of the crowd again in John's gospel. This is his last word to them. It might be, as you would think of it, his final sermon to this unbelieving crowd. The verses before us this morning are all about the cross work of Jesus. What is it that he wants them to know before he goes to the cross? He wants them to know what's going on at the cross. That this hour of suffering, which he told us has come in verse 23, he now gives us theological explanation for. He deposits a a wonderful store of truth in this text, to help us understand his cross work. He continues his explanation of the cross in verse 27 after calling people to follow him as a seed of wheat falls into the ground and dies. Now he says, this is what's going to happen to me in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. You'll remember in the broader context of John 12 that Jesus is likely on Tuesday of his Passion Week. His triumphal entry was on Sunday. Then he spent Monday and Tuesday occupying the temple grounds and refuting every challenge that came his way from the religious elites all the way to anyone who had a question for him. Most recently, there were a group of of Greek God-fearers, not full and true Jews, but Greek God-fearers who came and wanted to have an audience with Jesus. And his response, remember, to their request was to speak of his hour of glorification. He said, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified in verse 23. Verse 23. And that led him then to speak of anyone who wants to follow me. So you want an audience with me, you must know I'm about to be glorified. And by that he means I'm about to die. And then he goes on to explain, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to look like to come after me. You too must die. You must, like this seed of wheat, also fall into the ground and follow me in being crucified with me. He says literally, it will cost you everything to be my disciple. That leads him then in verse 27 to kind of a turn in the narrative to reflecting upon his soon death. And he thinks about the reality as he goes ever closer to the cross. Moving to that moment where he will give himself as a ransom for many, his soul is troubled. And having a troubled soul, what does he do? He prays. To the Father. He not only prays to the Father, but he expresses deep significance about his coming death. He presses upon the crowd and tells them, This is what's demanded of you in light of my coming death. This text tells us about the cross of Christ, which is coming ever more into view as Christ's hour approaches. We learn from this text much about that approaching hour. I want you to see, first of all, in verse 27, the trouble of the approaching hour. The trouble of the approaching hour. As he thinks of his coming death, his soul is troubled. The verb for troubled is in the present tense, which signifies an ongoing state of affairs. This is how it was in his soul as he drew ever closer, minute by minute, to the reality of going to the cross. He is troubled. Troubled. That means he's in great distress. His soul is, is stirred up. It's the same word used uh, of the invalid who is laying by the pool, wanting to touch the waters that were stirred up by the Spirit of God, presumably. It's a, a stirring of things deep in the depths of Christ. It's the word used for Herod in Matthew 2 when he hears the report of the wise men that they've seen the star of a newborn king. And he sends them to find him in Bethlehem and to report back to him. And the text says when, he does, when they don't, he is troubled in his soul and so troubled that he sends his henchmen to kill all of the boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem. That's what it means to be troubled. It provokes that kind of action. It's that unsettled of a reality. It's the word used to describe the disciples when they saw a man walking on water. They're out in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. A storm has arose. The waves are crashing. They're not sure they're going to make it to the shore. And they see a man walking through the storm meaning to pass them by. The gospel writers say the disciples were terrified. They were troubled at this sight. They can hardly make it in a boat. Who is the man walking on the water? They are caught with the reality of Jesus walking past them. It's the word used to describe Jesus when he sees Mary and the crowd of Jews constrained by the grief of a dead Lazarus as they approach his tomb. The text says Jesus was troubled in his soul. It's the word used in chapter 13 when Jesus will predict that one of his 12 apostles will betray him and will hand him over to be crucified. It says as as he begins to speak about that, he was troubled in his soul. His heart is stirred by that reality. And as Jesus then comes closer to the cross, he is deeply troubled in his soul. And I have to ask you, why? Why is he troubled in his soul? Certainly you have heard the stories of, of many martyrs who have faced the the burning stake, or the firing line, or some form of torture before death, and they've done so courageously and seemingly at peace. They've even sang hymns and quoted scripture and used the moment to proclaim the gospel. You remember the story of John Rogers, don't you? He was the the first martyr under Bloody Mary in England. As she ascended the throne, she determined to, to rid England of all the Protestants. And she started with John Rogers. As he faced his sure death, he was asked if he would recant the teachings of the gospel. And he simply said, that which I have preached I will seal with my blood. That's courage. That man's at peace with his God and with the gospel of God. And then as he was tied to the stake, the fire was lit beneath him. The flame started to lick up on his body and his hands John Fox, the martyrologist who tells us the stories of the martyrs, says it this way, The fire was put unto him, and when it had taken hold both upon his legs and his shoulders, he, as one, feeling no smart, washed his hands in the flame, as though it had been in cold water. And after lifting up his hands unto heaven, not removing the same until such time as the devouring fire had consumed them, most mildly, this happy martyr yielded up his spirit into the hands of his heavenly Father. That's the kind of peace and courage and boldness that many martyrs had as they faced their death. So why does John the Apostle, directed by the Holy Spirit, want you to know that Jesus is deeply Troubled in his soul. Was it the deep physical suffering he knew he was about to endure? Was it the thought of the crown of thorns pressing upon his head and blood running down his face to the point where he probably couldn't even see anymore? Was it the thought of the the lashings, the beatings he would take that would tear his flesh front and back and open his wounds so terribly that he would become unrecognizable? Was it the pulling of his beard by the Roman soldiers who would mock him and shame him? Was it the shame of the crowds who would pass him and say, you saved others, save yourself? Was it the thought of the nails piercing his wrists and his feet as he hung upon a cross? Was it the thought of his open wounds on his back rubbing up and down on a wood cross as he gasped for breath? Was it the thought of his final moments in which he could not gather any air and finally gave up his spirit? Was it the physical suffering of the cross of Christ which troubled Jesus? Or maybe was it simply Jesus' humanity as he looked ahead to the cross? Is that the explanation of this trouble? As he looks ahead to the suffering in his humanity, he is overwhelmed by the reality of it and he exposes the the terror of humanity as a sacrifice in his troubled spirit. As though somehow you could divide the two natures of this one man, placing one here and one there, and not them meeting in this moment. The answer to all those questions I've asked you is, of course not. That is not what troubles our Lord here the only way to make sense of this agony of soul in the Lord Jesus is the reality of being made sin for you and for me. He knows as truly God and truly man the punishment for sin that awaits him. He understands the fullness of the cup of wrath that is waiting to be poured out upon him upon the cross of Christ he knows he will bear that for us in in those eternal moments beyond our comprehension those hours upon the cross as he suffered under the weight of our penalty he suffered our eternal condemnation in those moments as the God man The suffering is beyond human comprehension. And he, 48 to 72 hours out, looks ahead and his soul is troubled by that reality. He will soon drink that cup to its last drop. But look at what he says next. He asks the question, What shall I say about this trouble? Notice he doesn't ask, What shall I do about this trouble? He has determined, his face is set like flint for Jerusalem. He is marching one step at a time to the cross of Calvary. Nothing will delay him or deter him. He will lay down his life for his sheep. He does not wonder what he will do. He knows what he will do. He asks here, what shall I say? the ESV and the NASB frame this as a hypothetical question. Combining it with the next question, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Kind of like a, is that what I should say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? And Oh, no, no, no. I came here for this very hour. I think in light of the other gospel records, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they tell us about the Garden of Gethsemane, it's better to understand this as a legit question from Jesus, a request. What shall I say? And he answers, Father, save me from this hour. Is that not what he did in Gethsemane in a few hours from now, in about 48 hours from this event? When he anticipated the cup of God's wrath, he cried out to the Father, Take, if it be possible, what? Take this cup from me. That was not a hypothetical question. That was a request of a a terrorized inner soul of the God man. And then he answers his own request, doesn't he, in prayer? and submits his will to the fathers because he knows that's why he came. That's exactly what happens here. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, and it's the Greek word Allah. It's an adversative. It's a, a turn in the text. Translated as but in English. It could as well be translated as no. Not a chance. I have come here for this very hour. He is truly and really wrestling with the reality of the condemnation of the cross. Beloved, Jesus was not a play actor on that cross. He was not emotionless. He was not a placeholder suffering, at least in sight, but not in reality under the condemnation of your sins. No, he really and truly bore your sins in his body on the tree. And as he looks ahead to that, he is terrified at that reality. What we see in Jesus here is then illustrative of what we will face as we will follow our Lord. I think this is part of why it follows that statement in verses 25 and 26 in John's gospel. We'll never have to endure this kind of death. We'll never have to go through one drop of the cup of God's wrath against our sin Praise Jesus, those who are now in Christ have no condemnation in him. He has taken it all. That's why John Rogers could die with courage and peace. Because the worst they could do to him was kill his body. And he's basically saying, go for it, my death is gain. If you think that's how you're going to get rid of the gospel, you've got another thing coming This flame you light will set a torch of gospel truth in this land, so go for it. He did not face in his death any ounce of the condemnation against his sin. But Jesus is troubled by something far greater, by the reality of the struggle with sin on the cross that is about to be his. So friend, you must know, believer, if you're going to follow Jesus, You're going to have stirring in your soul like Jesus. To be like that grain of wheat which falls into the ground and dies in order to produce fruit, then you must know that's going to hurt. That's going to bring trouble to your life. That's going to be hard for you. That's going to stir and trouble and terrify your soul. Dying to self and being crucified with Christ is not an easy reality. You're picking a fight with your flesh. You're taking the fight to the enemy of sin and you can be sure that there will be deep inner turmoil in your soul. In fact, I've come to grow somewhat suspect of professing believers who seem to be absent of this conflict. Believers ought to be marked by a peace that overwhelms and consumes them, the peace of Christ. But they ought also be marked by this Constant struggle with sin. With dying to self. With being crucified daily with Christ. With walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And that's hard. And that will trouble you. And that will hurt you. And that will be difficult for you. Just as it was difficult for Christ. So know what you sign up for. If you have not that struggle, I compel you to examine your life to see if you are indeed in Christ this trouble of the approaching hour is followed by the prayer of the approaching hour verses 28 to 30 what does Jesus do in response to his troubled soul what's his his first response to that inner turmoil well his first response is to speak truth to himself to remind himself of the reality of why he came I've come here for this very hour I'm not backing out now but then immediately after reminding himself of truth what does he do next take notes Lodge it in your soul. When that deep inner turmoil rages within you, speak truth to yourself. Remind yourself of who you are and of who God is. And then what do you do next? You pray. Follow our Lord's pattern. He prayed. And follow not just that he prayed, but what he prayed. He prayed for his Father to be glorified. Believer, I don't know if there's a more gut-level prayer of Jesus than this. He taught us how to pray in the disciples' prayer. He models prayer for us in the high priestly prayer in John 17. I don't mean to elevate one prayer over another in the life of Jesus, but he is terrified in this moment of the reality of the cross. His soul is troubled and stirred, and he cries out to his Father, one thing, Father, be Glorified, Father, be glorified. Now we know this did not stop him from asking for the Father to take him out of this hour. We covered that already. So you need to know it's not wrong for you in your most difficult hour to say to God, please take me out of this. Jesus did, you can. Remove me from this, save me from this. But immediately on the heels of that prayer for God's deliverance, you must have this prayer of submission and of desire for the glory of the Father to be seen. Jesus longs for his suffering to be like a a telescope lens through which all can see the the vast and far-off majesty and glory of his Father. For God to be glorified, scripturally speaking, we're talking always about his essence and his nature and his perfections being displayed, being revealed, being made known to mankind so that his infinite worth and magnificence and inestimable value are seen in some way by his created mankind. The Bible tells us that happens through God's creation. The the grandeur of the heavens and of the hills point us to their maker and their creator. They show us something of the majesty of the one who made them. The Bible tells us that this happens all throughout redemption history as God intervenes in the the story of mankind and he reveals himself along the way, showing more of his character in each new revelation. Every miraculous work in the Old Testament, every promise spoken to Israel, every move of God's providence to keep his promises, every faithful servant raised up to serve God in and among his people, make known more and more the glory of God. They show, they display God's magnificence. All throughout Jesus' ministry, the same glory has been increasingly shown. Every authoritative word he has spoken Every parable he has taught, every interaction of compassion with a lost and dying crowd, every demon cast out, every miracle that has been worked, all make obvious the great difference of Jesus from all others. So often the response in the Gospels is, who is this man? What kind of man does this? He must be something more than us. After the life of Christ, the glory of God will be seen in the church as it grows and spreads. Ephesians 3 makes that clear. Every soul individually saved from the pit of hell displays a, another shade, another, another action of the glory of God. There's a coming day in which God will dwell with redeemed mankind in the new heavens and the new earth, and the, the centerpiece of that eternal state will be what? What? the brightness of the glory of God seen in its fullness so full as to spend the rest of eternity understanding another layer of the manifold glory of God. But all of this that I have just mentioned points to or flows out from the glory of God made known in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the linchpin of the display of the glory of God in all of Revelation history. Jesus' darkest hour is also the hour of God's greatest glory. Sufferer, are you listening? Follower of Christ, as you are asked by Christ to fall into the ground and die Are you hearing what is the reality out of the life of Christ the glory of God is seen most clearly and most brightly in his most difficult hour How is that so well scripture tells us that you know the depth and the breadth and the width of God's love for us as we look at the what the cross Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The very next verse, Romans 5 and verse 9, tells us that the cross displays God's righteous wrath. His condemnation against sin, meted out upon his son in our place. We learn in Romans 5:11 of the reconciliation that God works to bring mankind into peace with their maker and creator, and that is accomplished through the cross of Christ. Romans 3, 25-26 tells us that the cross displays the, the righteous justice of God. Having been forbearing with the sins of mankind for millennia, now he displays his righteous judgment against sin. He is, the, he is just and the justifier of all who believe on Christ. The cross displays his righteous justice. 1 Corinthians one to 22-24, we learn of God's inscrutable wisdom and his infinite power made known through the cross of Christ. Colossians 2, 13-14, we learn that God nailed our record of debt To the cross, which provides for our eternal forgiveness. Hebrews 2, verse 9, we learn that Jesus tasted death for everyone at the cross and therefore displays the unmatched grace of God. All those things about God you hold dear, all the things that compel you to worship Him, how do you most know they are true about God? How do you most clearly see his inscrutable wisdom? How do you undeniably know his unending love? Where do you experience his everlasting mercy? Where do you turn to to see his unending forgiveness? Where is it that you look to know that you are reconciled to the God who made you, against whom you have rebelled in your sinfulness? Where? It is to the cross of Christ. It is here that all of those things are most brightly displayed. And it is for this that Jesus prays. Lord, Father, glorify your name. So as you follow Christ, take up your cross and die to self, hate your life here so you don't lose it there, learn from our Lord Jesus here. It should be your greatest desire for God to be exalted and known through your life. But you can only pray, Father, be glorified in me if you first have prayed, Father, save me from this hour, and then, but you've made me or I've come for this hour. As he teaches us to pray the disciples' prayer, our longing for the will of God to be done follows our submission to Him as our glorious Heavenly Father. So it is here with our Lord, as He longs for God to be glorified, He is submitted in totality to the work of the Father. So friend, you you can easily pray in your prayer, Father, be glorified in my life. But if your heart is unsubmissive in your suffering, if you're demanding of your own way and your own path out, then God cannot be glorified in that. The one must precede the other. The unbelieving crowd around Jesus is confused by this voice. The Father breaks the veil of heaven and earth, speaks to his Son for all to hear. This is the third time in Jesus' life this has happened. The first was at his baptism when he came out of the water the voice from heaven spoke to validate that this is the Messiah, to validate his ministry. The second time was at his transfiguration when on the mountain he took on the figure of heaven in his appearance and he was validated by the voice from heaven as my beloved son. So he is who he says he is, believe and follow. And then here, hours before his death, God breaks into human experience and validates his glory in Jesus' suffering, which is so important because Jesus' suffering looks like anything but glory. It looks like complete and total shame. It looks like a, a mockery to the Godhead. Before Jesus ever enters into one step of that suffering, the Father speaks and says, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. The unbelieving crowd misses it. They don't know what's going on. Some, in their unbelief, think it just thundered, which tells you what kind of voice it was. Loud and thunderous as it was often in the Old Testament. Think Mount Sinai. Others gave it a little bit more supernatural meaning and thought, well, maybe it was an angel who spoke to him. But apparently, they all missed the most obvious explanation, which is that this son had actual communion with his father, of which he has already said, I and the father are one. And so you would expect if you heard something, you might think it's the Father speaking to him. They miss that completely. Jesus drills it into them and says, this was not for me, but for you. Meaning I didn't need to hear that to be validated that he would be glorified. I knew that already. But it was spoken publicly and audibly for you to be a sign to you for the unbelieving, a condemning sign. For the believing, a confirming sign. How many times has John told us in his gospel that we didn't understand that until after he rose from the dead, and then it all made sense. So to hear with this reality of the voice from heaven, it confirms their faith. God heard and answered the prayer of his son. He glorified himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Then consider the triumph of the approaching hour, verses 31 and 32. This answer from heaven compels Jesus to give us one of the the greatest theological explanations of the cross in all of Scripture. That should capture your attention. This is one of the greatest theological deposits of truth about the cross in all of Scripture, and it comes straight from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. It's a a treasure trove of revelation about what the cross will do. So as Jesus draws closer to his appointed hour, His soul is troubled, but he's moved from trouble to triumph, right? That's the words of verses 31 to 32. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He speaks of three things in those two verses that will be accomplished through his crosswork, his death. For us, the first is the world will be judged the second is the devil will be cast out the third is he being lifted up will draw all men to himself all of those realities are counterintuitive to dying and executions death right isn't the cross judgment isn't the cross utter shame isn't it your lowest moment Isn't it the worst possible outcome of a life lived in this earth? Doesn't it look at the cross like evil has won? Like the one sent from heaven has been put to death and it is over? That the devil has finally found a way to overcome the seed of the woman? Doesn't it look like the world has victory and like sin has overwhelmed and put to death righteousness in the flesh? But this is the, the puzzle or the paradox of the cross. This is counterintuitive. Things that, that are there aren't actually there. They're, they're actually different. What should be judgment is actually turned to be judgment on the world. What should be defeat is actually turned to be victory over his enemy. What should be utter shame and the lowest point is turned to be his highest exaltation. By which he will draw all men to himself. Satan's supposed win is actually his greatest loss. The seed of the woman looks like he is crushed by the serpent, but in actuality, it's only his heel that is bruised. It's the head of the serpent that is crushed at the cross of Christ. Jesus dies on the cross, but in actuality, his death proves to be the death blow to the devil. This is the great reversal of the cross, the glorious display of the majesty of God through Christ. Consider that first one, that the world is judged. The world presumes to judge Jesus in this approaching hour. They're going to weigh in on him. They're going to hold their own court. They they already have on Sunday. They've claimed him to be king, or at least king potential. But now their opinion is turning. They've they've heard him stand in the temple courts and declare, this is what kind of king I'm going to be. And now they're saying on late Tuesday, early Wednesday, that's not the king we want. And by Friday they will cry out in unison, crucify him, crucify him. They'll give their opinion of him. They'll assess his words and his ministry. They'll determine with the chief priests and the Pharisees that he is a liar and a blasphemer and must die. He'll be rejected by the, the gathered crowd. He'll be sentenced to death by the Roman governor as representative of all of the unbelieving world. And on Friday, he'll hang on the cross in judgment from the world. What Jesus says before he ever gets there is, listen, this is actually the judgment of the world. The roles are actually entirely reversed. This is the pinnacle expression of rebellious unbelief It's the great guilt of sinful mankind expressed in one event. And Jesus says that cross work will forever judge the unbelieving world. In chapter 16, we'll get to this, but Jesus will say to his disciples in the upper room, I'm sending my spirit and he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He explains what he means by that. He says I, the spirit will convict the world of judgment in that Satan is judged. In other words, the Spirit will come and work in the world through the church to let the world know that they're on the losing side. That the battle has been won at the cross, and they're on the wrong team. In Acts 17, as Paul preaches to the world in the most worldly of cities, Athens, the epicenter of worldly thought and philosophy, as he preaches to them the gospel of Christ, he says to them, all people everywhere must repent. Why? Why? Because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who has been appointed as their judge. So he tells them in Athens, listen, repent because you're judged and there's coming a day when that's going to be your reality. And then he says, how do you know who this man is? Well, God made it known to you by raising him from the dead. What does he point to? The cross of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, saying, "Because He died and was buried and was raised, you can know He is your judge." In other words, the world is judged based at the, on the basis of the cross work of Christ. He who is condemned is actually He who will ultimately condemn all who are not believing in Him. Jesus also tells us that the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's speaking of the, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, Lucifer, who becomes Satan, who fights against God at every turn. This is the first of three references to the prince of the world in John's gospel. In his first letter, John, first John five nineteen, he says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Since our rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden, we've been cast out into the realm of, of Satan's dominance. We've been given over to his power, the power of death. But in Christ, God enters into our sin-dominated, sin-cursed, devil-run world, and Jesus is about to go to the cross to turn back the curse, to make a way for us to get out from under the power of Satan. He must do that by giving himself as a sacrifice to the condemnation of our sin. Satan's realm of power, as we see in Hebrews 2, and again in 1 John 3, 8, his power is tied to sin and death. This is his power. It is the power of death related to sin. He has power over the world in that he deceives and destroys. He tempts us to sin, to join him in his rebellion by which he knows we will be condemned to eternal death. This is his power. But the great irony of the cross is that through death, Jesus destroys the devil's power of death. These are deep theological concepts, but they should stir deeply in your soul. The sinless sacrifice vacates Satan's authority over you. He can no longer accuse you. He can no longer appeal to God's law and say, look, he broke your law. Because now there's one standing in that courtroom who says, no, that person's mine. I died for them. I paid that price. They are no longer guilty. There's no more debt to pay. The ruler of this world is cast out. The third triumph Jesus promises is to, through the cross, draw all people to himself. A word for draw is the same one we spent quite a bit of time on in John 6, 44. It's a word that implies resistance in the object being drawn. It's used of drawing a sword or drawing water from a well. It's incapable. The object is incapable of propelling itself to come. It's unwilling or unable to come voluntarily. So Jesus says this cross work will be this magnet that will draw all people To him, this lowest moment, this point of deepest shame and of greatest suffering will actually be his his highest exaltation. He'll be lifted up. It's a a word that every other New Testament writer uses to, to speak of exalting someone above everyone else for praise and glory and honor. Jesus uses it in John's Gospel repeatedly to speak of his death on the cross. I will be lifted up. I'll be exalted on a Roman execution stake. And he says... By this I will be glorified. In one sense, his drawing of all people to himself is a universal reality. The cross of Christ is the pinnacle point of human history. All people everywhere are held accountable based upon what they do with the Christ of the cross. Just think of that scene on Golgotha. There's there's three being crucified. Christ in the middle, one on either side. This is a picture of all of humanity. Christ is the dividing line. His cross work is the dividing line. He's exalted above all humanity of all time. And you're divided by him one side or the other. You're either the the mocking, shame-throwing thief in his rebellion who holds on to his unbelief till his dying breath and spends eternity apart from Christ in condemnation and torment. Or you are the penitent thief on the other side who sees in Christ your only hope, someone who has done no wrong, who must be dying in the place of others. And you see in him your only hope. You are clearly made, it's clearly made known to you that he is something other than man. And you look to him and you say to him, remember me when you enter paradise. And you hear from him the words of forgiveness and salvation, today you will be with me. paradise. Christ exalted on the cross splits humanity in those two categories. But in a different sense, he also is speaking here about drawing people outside of the Jews to himself. In the context, the Greeks have come seeking him. That's on his mind. And through this statement, he is expanding the scope of salvation from one nation to all nations. He's saying to the Greeks who are hearing him, everyone will be drawn to me through the cross of Christ. The center point of the work of the Savior of all men is his cross work at Calvary. There is one message that is relevant in every generation, in every age, in every place, in every tongue, and to every people, and it is the message of Christ crucified for the sins of mankind, buried and raised again for our justification. This is the exaltation of Christ, the triumph of the cross. Quickly then, notice the demand of the approaching hour in verses 33 to 36. John gives us that editorial note in verse 33 to say Jesus is talking about his death on a cross. The unbelieving crowd didn't miss it. They knew that's what he was talking about. They understood him to mean his execution. They can't make sense of it How can you say the Messiah, the Son of Man, is going to suffer like that? He's a a remaining king, a conquering and an ever-reigning king in their mind. How could he die? What kind of Messiah is this you're talking about? Jesus responds without a direct answer but with an indirect one. He never says to them, I'm that Messiah, and here's what that means. No, what he says to them is, walk in the light you have been given. Believe in the light and you will become sons of the light. He points them to the demand of the approaching hour. He says to them soon, I will no longer be here. The light will be gone. And you will walk in the darkness and you will stumble about if you don't walk in the light when it's here. This is his last appearance as the light to the general crowd. His suffering will be mostly private. His death on the cross will not be seen by this crowd in large part. He'll be buried and be raised from the tomb, and when he is resurrected, who will he appear to? His disciples, those who believe. And so he says this approaching hour has a a present demand on your soul. The word for believe is in the present tense. It means do it now and keep doing it. Believe in the light. Everything I've said to you about myself, believe. The word for becoming sons of light is is in the aorist tense. It, It shows that becoming a child of Christ, a child of God through Christ, is not an ongoing event. It doesn't happen in degrees. You are immediately taken from darkness to light and are allowed by his kindness to walk in light. This is the demand of the cross. We see the trouble of the cross, the prayer in light of the cross, the triumph of the cross, and the demand of the cross. May God help us to walk in light of this truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this text. Thank you for your work in our hearts by your spirit with this word. Help us to be faithful, fervent, steadfast in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: He who was lifted up is the light of the world. Let's stand as we sing.
0: Have each of you today, if you're visiting with us, it's a special joy to have you. I trust we'll get the opportunity to meet you. Hope you've felt welcomed among us, but especially we hope you've seen more of the glory and goodness of Christ as we've worshiped Him together. I want to invite you back to our service tonight at six o'clock. Frank and Kathy King, who are missionaries to Italy, will be with us. Uh, if you do not make it your habit to come on Sunday nights, can I encourage you strongly to make it back tonight? Whenever a missionary presents, it's a great opportunity for you to be challenged in your commitment to the Lord. Uh, especially parents. I know Sundays are hard, and getting your kids back is hard, Uh, and many of you are heading to camp. I get that, but if you can make it in tonight, uh, your kids especially need to see the example of missionaries giving themselves for the sake of the gospel around the world, and Frank and Kathy are fantastic representatives of that. So let me encourage you tonight, six o'clock, for our evening service. God's grace to you. You're dismissed.